0: Live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 30th, 2014. I have a few things to, stay be- to say before continuing with our um, presentation on Paul's epistle to the Romans. Four weeks ago, I did a presentation on the Saturday night program entitled, Sons Are Bastards. And, and since then, since informing all of these fence-sitters and, and these compromisers on the Word of God, that I wanted nothing to do with them, and, and it's not anything new that I've said, it's just a... Um, well, a, a repeat, a rerun of things that I've said all along the last, ever since I've started this endeavor five years ago, over five years ago, I've been saying this in, in one way or another over and over again, that, that if you're compromising on a race issue, if you're embracing people of mixed races or making excuses for them, and you're a race mixer and, and you're unrepentant or, or you're um, keeping company with race mixers, I don't want anything to do with you. If you're making apologies for people of mixed race and for race mixers, I don't want anything to do with you. So, so now my detractors are saying, well, Fink's the Pope of CI. He can boss us all around. No, Fink doesn't claim to be anything think, even though he has a certificate of ordination from the Church of Christ in Israel dated for December of 2000, doesn't even use the title pastor, never mind trying to be somebody's pope. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person, neither let me give flattering titles unto man for I know not to give flattering titles. In doing so, my maker would soon take me away. Now, now I don't disdain the title, Pastor. If if you're gathering the sheep to the sheepfold and properly expounding the word of God and other people give you that title, that's fine. I'm not going to knock you for it, but I don't use titles for several reasons, so I certainly don't want titles even from my detractors. What they don't understand is that Fink may not have any power over them, and he certainly doesn't want any, but Fink does have power over his own house. If you were in my house and vociferated an acceptance of people of mixed races, I'd toss your ass right out. So it is with my chat pages and my forums. Because they're my property, and you don't have a right to, to um, soil them with your obscene philosophies and your basically satanic ways because you embracing the other in mixed races, you permitting those of mixed race to, to, to make a claim of being in the congregation of the Lord, you are acting like Satan. I did a program on Freedom of Association. It's posted on Christagenia. I did it in March of 2012. And in that program, it was actually an old European fellowship forum, and and I had done a little half-hour sermon at the beginning of those. And in that program, I demonstrated that Christians have a right and an obligation not to associate with fornicators, with sexual deviants, with other sinners. The precepts, the commandments against race mixing have not changed. Why would Paul of Tarsus say that Esau was a profane man and a fornicator if he had not married Canaanite women? Why did Paul call him that? If he had not married, Canaanite women. So we see in the New Testament, as well as in the Old, fornication is a serious sin, and Christians are to separate themselves from fornicators. We have a freedom of association, and we have a freedom of disassociation. If you don't understand that, then you really don't know your Bible at all, no matter how old your certificate of, organize, uh, certificate of ordination came from, or no matter who signed it. Clowns, that's what you are. That, that's what you really are. You're clowns making your own compromises on the scripture to make you feel comfortable in the world. Christians, real Christians, make a choice between God or the world. When I did my Amos Part 10 presentation in in April of 2013, I also talked about freedom of association and freedom of disassociation. And the text to that, that, that mini sermon, which I gave before I presented my last part of my Amos presentation, the text on, of, of that is, is posted under remarks on freedom of association and disassociation on the Christogedia Forum. If I feel that you are a fornicator or that you are a sinner or that and, and unrepentant, because I only have to accept repentant sinners. I don't have to accept unrepentant sinners, and I certainly should not. Paul of Tarsus said, deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh that the, that the spirit may be preserved in the day of Christ. Christians must make a choice between God or the world. I have recently been criticized, and these are my words in April of twenty thirteen. I've recently been criticized for choosing to separate myself from certain people who I believe had made themselves friends of the world. Excepting your little brass bastard granddaughters, you're making yourself a friend of the world. Some of my critics have insinuated that I have no right to tell them whom not to associate with. Well, that is true. I cannot control whom other people associate themselves with. I'm not trying to play Pope. These clowns, these clowns who are ridiculing me for practicing my freedom of disassociation, they are the ones who imagine themselves to be Popes. And they're really clowns. I have no right and no control over whom other people associate themselves with. However, I have every right not to associate with people based upon their associations. And it is that right which I am asserting. That's what I explained in March of 2012. That's what I explained in April of 2013, and I say it again now.
1: Since all men are sinners,
0: whether they are Israelites or not, Romans 5.12. Yet since only the children of Israel has a promise of cleansing and only Israel was cleansed on the cross of Christ, then it naturally follows that all others are unclean. Christians have a clear admonition to separate themselves from the unclean. If you have a problem with that, you have a problem with Scripture and not with me. But for my part, and I know that I don't do it perfectly, but for my part, I'm going to do my best to live by the Scripture. If we all agreed with Christ, it don't matter whether or not we like each other. We have to agree with Christ, or we have no part with him.
1: 1 Corinthians
0: 5, 9 through 10, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, with race mixers, people who pursue different flesh, and not altogether with the fornicators of this world. For then must ye needs go out of the world. The Christian should separate himself from these people. It's an obligation. A lot of people have said, and this gets back to me, I don't go listening to other people's programs, but my my dear friends, they do, and and, um, sometimes I prefer they didn't, but they do report things that are said about me in other Christian identity venues. And some people have said that Think has a lot of knowledge, or he knows the scripture, or he knows history, but he has no love. Christian love, real Christian love, is love for God first. That's the first commandment. The first three or four commandments, depending on how you want to number them, all have to do with our relationship with God. God comes first, therefore his word comes first. Real Christian love is love for God's word first. To hell with your brother if he doesn't obey God's word. Deliver such a one to Satan so that the body may be destroyed and the spirit may
1: live in the day of Christ. Racism,
0: absolute racism, is love. Racism isn't hate. Racism is love. Yahweh God created our race to be kind after kind. Racism is love. It's love of one's true kindred, and it's love for God's original creation. What men call hate properly applied is merely a natural defense against that which threatens the things which we love. Therefore, hate is healthy. Hate is even godly when it is properly applied. And God hates too. If you don't understand that, then I don't want you listening to me. God comes first. And we should love God and his creation because he loves us. We should hate all threats to that creation. That is our defense against those threats. Christian humility... Real Christian humility is submitting oneself to the word of God. It's not kissing your brother's ass when he's wrong. That's not humility. That's compromise. Humility is not compromise. I also did a program on this. I don't remember where it is. Offhand, but it's on Christogenia. It might be part of my um, presentation on the Epistles of Peter that seems to come to mind. Real Christian humility is submitting oneself to the Word, to the Word, and to the laws of God. Not kissing your brother's ass.
1: My detractors pretend to be racists and they purposely obfuscate the racial
0: message of Christian identity. They're interlopers. They're intruders. They don't belong. They're either purposeful deceivers or they themselves are deceived by a deceiver. And by their own lusts, because the deceiver, the serpent who deceives them, tells them something that they want to hear because they have a little bastard granddaughter or because they got half-Filipino kids. That's why they hate me, because I tell the truth, and I won't compromise with them over their little half-Filipino kids. I'm not going to tickle their ears by telling them, oh, God's going to love them. No, he's not. He's going to toss those bastards into the lake of fire. That's what he's going to do. I'm not playing Pope. I can read the Bible. And that's what the Bible tells me is going to happen to those little bastards. I'm not going to ever compromise on that message to make somebody feel good or to make them comfortable in this world. These people who compromise on the race message are doing it purposely. And then they go and troll the forums and the, and the, and, and the talk show pages and the chat rooms of the people who stand for the message. And they do that so that they could make Christian identity into a circus, and then the spectators end up defending the clowns. Why do the spectators defend the clowns? I'll tell you why. Because when someone tells them the truth, the spectators resist the truth. They resist it because if they accept it, then they're convicted
1: of their own stupidity. So they have to defend the clowns, otherwise they have to admit their own stupidity. And
2: that's
0: enough of this topic for one night. Now we will move on to the epistles of Paul, the epistle of Paul to the Romans, part nine. The two natures of a Damic man. I also did a program on this, which was even more in depth than my presentation tonight on the Christogenia forum, probably about wow, close to four years ago, and um, it's still posted at Christogenia. You could search Christogenia for the two natures of a damic man and find that forum. In Romans chapter one.
1: Paul explained that the sinful state
0: of man
1: was due to a departure from Yahweh their
0: God and the corruption of society which that departure had summoned. In Romans chapter 2, Paul credited the Romans with building a society founded on the rule of law and contrasted those who had the law of God but did not keep it, the Judeans, with those who did not have it and yet maintained the morality found in the precepts which the law represented. Yet Paul explained in Romans chapter 3 that all men sinned and therefore the righteousness of Yahweh was mercy towards men even in their state of sin. So while men were not judged by God according to the law. It was nevertheless necessary for
1: men to uphold the
0: law. Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, that the promises of the faith in Christ represented the ongoing fulfillment of the promises which Yahweh had made to Abraham. Paul also explained that the Romans being descended from Abraham were a part of that fulfillment. In that chapter, Paul further explained that those promises made to Abraham transcended the Levitical law and that they were apart from and were not reliant upon the law. In Romans chapter 5, Paul asserted that eternal life was the promise of the entire Adamic race which was also apart from the law. With this he explained that sin existed outside of the law, but that sin was not imputed because the law had not been given. However, Paul did not teach antinomianism. That's another straw man argument thrown out there by by clowns that don't really understand the scripture. Paul did not teach antinomianism in spite of the fact that a Adamic man would be justified by God apart from a keeping of the law. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul himself answered those same assertions, which were often postulated, even in his time, by the enemies of Christ, explaining that obedience to the law is necessary in spite of the fact that man would not be judged by the law before Yahweh their God. The enemies of Christ do not understand this precept, regardless of whether they claim to be Christian. And because it is in their nature to obfuscate the word of God, they argue that the law was not done away with, seeking to rule over man with their own dogmas. As we previously explained, the cherubim, placed outside of the Garden of Eden were to keep the way to the Tree of Life. Therefore, later on, after the call of Abraham and the election of Israel, we see cherubim placed upon the Ark of God where the law was kept.
1: That's because the law of God is the way
0: to the tree of life. Israel, keeping the law of God, albeit rather imperfectly, was preserved by God, so that the remnant of the nation could bring forth their Redeemer, the son who rose in the east. While all of this is symbolic, it certainly indicates for us the importance of the law of Yahweh God as a component for the maintenance of life, which is the keeping of an orderly and just society under God. Paul is, of course, addressing the Romans as Israelites. And he tells them as much in many ways throughout these chapters. It can indeed be demonstrated that the Romans, having descended from the Trojans of antiquity, were a branch of the ancient
1: children of Israel. So in Romans chapter
0: 7, Paul explains exactly how and why it was that they were not bound to the law. Because Yahweh came as a man and died in order to release Israel from the law. That the law would be fulfilled and the reconciliation of Yahweh with Israel through Christ would be made possible. Since in our last presentation, we only discuss these first four verses of Romans chapter 7. We will offer them once again here in summary from verse 1. Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another, who from the law was raised in order that, I'm sorry, who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Israel, as a nation, was the bride of Yahweh their God, and he was the husband. There are men who scoff at this, even in Christian identity. They should be ashamed of themselves. This is the language that Yahweh God used in order to define his relationship with the nation of Israel, depicted as a woman throughout the Revelation
1: and often throughout the prophets.
0: If Yahweh God chose this language, and these laws of marriage to define his relationship with Israel. Who the hell is man to question that? Oh, he didn't really mean that. Oh, yes, he did mean that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have used that language over and over and over again throughout all the prophets and the Gospels and the letters of Paul and
1: the revelation Yahweh
0: married to Israel put Israel away for their sin and issued a bill of divorcement through the words of the prophets but Yahweh had also promised to remarry Israel at a future day however the law was an obstruction to the promised reconciliation if Yahweh should die he would free both Israel and himself from the letter of the law by bringing the law to a fulfillment. Then, once again, he would be free to join Israel to himself in a renewed relationship, thereby keeping his promises to the patriarchs. This is the major facet of the passion of the Christ. And it is the singular reason why he had to die for the sins of Israel. It is also the only reason why he could die for the sins of Israel. Since if the law had to be kept and God's law cannot fail, Then the only other alternative was for all Israel to die, but Yahweh had promised in the prophets that they would not. There are other facets of his passion that may be understood and that are also edifying, but none so as important as the understanding of the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel. One other facet, Israel sold themselves into sin, and since the penalty for that sin is death, their kinsman redeemer had to pay the penalty of death in order to purchase Israel back from sin. However, even this is necessary for only one reason, because Yahweh God takes his law seriously, and he himself abides by it through this. Yahweh demonstrates first the importance of His law, and second, His love for us. And therefore, we in turn must capitulate and submit ourselves to Him and to His law, as Christ had said,
1: If you love me,
0: keep my commandments. Here, in the balance of Romans chapter 7, Paul continues his discussion of the need for the law of God, its function in our lives, and its relationship to our own sinful nature. But first, he substantiates our interpretation of those first four verses. Verse 5. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of fault or sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not
1: oldness of letter.
0: Paul said in Galatians 4, 5, that Christ was sent to redeem them that were under the law, that we, a pronoun limited to describe those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explained to his intended readers who were Romans, that Abraham was their forefather and that the fulfillment of the promises came to the nations of Abraham's seed, to those nations which were of the faith of Abraham. That is what Abraham believed. Here he attests to the Romans that they too were once under the law of God. Right in verse 5. This language once again demonstrates that Paul's un- it demonstrates Paul's understanding that the Romans were of the dispersions of Israel, because of course only Israel was ever under
1: the law of God. Here he also
0: shows exactly how the Romans and all of Israel were discharged from the law as he attests here. Because Yahweh, the husband, died on the cross of Christ to fulfill the law, as Paul explains in the first four verses of this chapter.
1: Paul had said in Romans chapter
0: 2, in verse 28 and 29, one by appearance is not a Judean, and not by appearance in flesh is circumcision, but in concealment is one a Judean, and circumcision is of the heart, in spirit, not in writing, of which approval is not from man, but from God. There are many commentators who would assume that because circumcision is of the heart and not of the flesh, that Paul opens the door for universalism. And therefore, anyone who claims to believe in Jesus has a circumcised heart. However, that interpretation neglects the entire context of Paul's epistle. Since in Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing those people who had the law written on paper, as opposed to those people of dispersed Israel, such as the Romans, who were among the subjects of the prophecy in Jeremiah to which Paul refers, where Yahweh promised to write his laws upon the hearts of the children of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31. These are two specific parties which Paul is comparing, and no third party can ever be added to the equation. Only the children of Israel could possibly be Discharged from the law since only the children of Israel were ever bound to the law. As Paul explains exactly how that discharge occurred in the first four verses of this very chapter. Non-Israelite peoples cannot possibly be added to the context of Paul's statements here. There is another aspect of Paul's words in these two verses, verses 5 and 6, which must be addressed at length. However, before doing so, we must discuss another heresy which some fools are attempting to inject into Christian identity theology. Certain posers, the same ones who basically criticize everything else I say, but then again they listen to everything else I say, I don't understand that. I don't understand that obvious lapse of their judgment. Certain posers are claiming that the breath of life, the spirit which Yahweh God instilled into the Adamic man, died at the fall from grace of our first parents. These people are idiots. The scripture soundly refutes this this idea. It never ceases to amaze me how men could conceive an idea in relation to one scripture that allows them to support an agenda. And at the same time, they ignore so many other scriptures which soundly refute their idea. It's like they're trying to Dodge around the Bible to trick people into something. Paul, Like accepting bastards. Paul tells us plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. From Zechariah chapter 12 from verse 1, the burden of the word of Yahweh for Israel. Sayeth Yahweh, who stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. That's the same spirit imparted to Adam. Again, from Proverbs chapter 20, from verse 27, the spirit of man is the candle of Yahweh, Searching all the inward parts of the belly. Again, from Proverbs chapter 18. From verse 14. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. But a wounded spirit, who can bear? Christ said many times in the gospel. Well, well, several times in the gospel. Don't fear Those who can hurt the body fear only God who can punish the spirit. And finally, from Psalm 32, from verse 2, Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Because the Adamic man, his spirit, is the real him. Most of these passages have a word for spirit, which is the same word used to describe that breath of life in Genesis chapter 2. Ostensibly, the word used to describe the spirit of man was also used to describe the breath. Because breath was associated with the unseen life force which could be discerned but which could not be seen. Many other passages of scripture demonstrate that the Adamic man has a distinct and enduring spirit imparted to him by Yahweh God and which distinguishes him from the beasts. From Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? And Ecclesiastes, that being a rhetorical question, Ecclesiastes is written very cynically. Ecclesiastes, a work of King Solomon, was a very cynical book until we get to the last chapter. It describes the state of man apart from God, And without the hope which we have in God, it's cynical purposely. It was written that way by design. But the rhetorical question, purposely cynical, elucidates the fact of the matter. We shall repeat verses 5 and 6 and address a different Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, and address a different aspect of Paul's
1: words. Verse 5. Indeed, when
0: we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law being put to death in that which we were held so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. As we explained last week, we all symbolically died in the death of Christ. We should be immersed in his death, understanding that he died for us. We are put to death in the law because we should have been executed under the law if Yahweh our God had not chosen to die on our behalf so that we would be released from the law
1: and bound in newness
0: of spirit and not oldness of letter. Unlike the beasts, the Adamic man has a spirit
1: from Yahweh God, through
0: which he may have communion with God. From, from 1 John 4.13, the Apostle says, Hereby know that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Therefore, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, speaking of Israelites, who are turned to Christ, that the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Yet, the Adamic man in his fleshly state is still a beast. Therefore, Solomon had written in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. So unlike the other creatures, the Adamic man has a dual nature, and the Adamic man may follow either one, that of the flesh or that of the spirit imparted to Adam which is the Spirit of God. That is why, in Jeremiah chapter 2, where the prophet laments the fornication of the children of Israel who mingled themselves with the other races, he describes them as having created broken cisterns that can hold no water broken cisterns cannot hold water and a mongrel people cannot contain the spirit which God imparted to a Danic man. We are going to expound upon a similar and lengthier explanation of the same concept expressed here which is found in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul said from verse 1 and you being dead in transgressions and in your errors, in which you had at one time walked in accordance with the age of this society, in accordance with the ruler of the office of the air, and we shall wait to address that enigmatic title, the spirit that is now operating within the sons of disobedience, among whom we also had all at one time conducted ourselves in the desires of our flesh, acting out the wills of the flesh and of the thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath, even like the others. Historically, In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is referring to the idolatry of the children of Israel for which they were put away by Yahweh their God. Paul describes a spirit operating in the sons of disobedience, among whom he says, we also had all at one time conducted ourselves. And because they did so, they were by nature children of wrath, even like the others. Paul is making a reference to two distinct groups, those who follow the sons of disobedience. And the sons of disobedience themselves, they are the others. They are the children of wrath. Following the sons of disobedience, we yield ourselves to our fleshly nature. And doing so, we also become children of wrath. That's why the people that don't separate themselves from Babylon in the end will suffer like punishment. The reference to nature is not a reference to race, but rather it is a reference to the fleshly nature of the Adamic man, where the ability of those who have the Spirit of God is to separate themselves from those who only have the fleshly nature, because they are indeed sons of disobedience. That's why Peter calls them natural brute beasts made to
1: be taken and destroyed. In
0: connection to a prophecy concerning the spread of the gospel, the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah 52.11, Depart ye, depart ye, go out ye from thence, Touch no unclean. Go ye out from the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. The King James translators added the word thing to the text. We omitted it. We omitted the word because the reference is actually to people, to those who were the children of wrath to those natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed to those who are not cleansed on the cross of Christ because they can't be cleansed Christ even told the apostles you were all clean except one
1: the uncleaner people ye
0: that bear the vessels of Yahweh. Paul's not, or or I'm sorry, Paul quotes this. Isaiah is not talking about people carrying cups and bowls and other utensils when he says, ye who bear the vessels of Yahweh. The people that bear the vessels of Yahweh are those who are of Adam, those who are have that spirit which Yahweh imparted to our race. The body is a vessel for the spirit. We learn in the Enoch literature that evil spirits come from the children of bastards. Evil spirits come from the children of race mixing evil spirits are derived from
1: bastards.
0: In Galatians chapter 5, Paul discusses this same topic once again where he says, Now I say, you must walk in the spirit, and the desire of the flesh you should not at all fulfill. The flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Indeed, These are in opposition to one another, in which case you should not do these things that you desire. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are under no law. Manifest of the deeds of the flesh. Such things are fornication, the creation of bastards. Uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, use of drugs, hostilities, contention, rivalry, wrath, intrigues, dissensions, sects, envyings, drunkenness, revelries, and things like these, which I have announced to you beforehand, just as I have said before, that they who practice such things shall not inherit Yahweh's kingdom. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against such things. But they of the anointed crucify the flesh along with those affections and those desires. If we live in the spirit, in the spirit we should walk. We should not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We've all committed at least some of the sins which Paul lists here because at various points in our lives, we all yield to the flesh in one degree or another. For this reason, the Apostle John wrote that if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. But when we do sin, If indeed we are children of Israel, then we have an advocate in Christ. 1 John chapter 2. However, the children of God have a dual nature, the spirit and the flesh, being born of both water and of the spirit, as Christ himself explains in John chapter 3. Therefore, employing self-control the children of God can indeed overcome the lusts and deeds of the flesh and repent of their sins. From John chapter 3, where Joshua is found in a conversation with Nicodemus and elaborates on his statement that a man must be born from above in order to see the kingdom of heaven. And I'll quote from John chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua replied, Truly, truly, I say to you, if one should not be born from water and spirit, he is not able to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. That which is born from of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born from of the spirit is spirit. You should not wonder that I said to you that it is necessary for you to be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it goes. I'm sorry, from where it comes and where it goes. Thusly are all who are born from of the Spirit. The denominational sects still follow the error of Nicodemus, imagining Christ to have been referring to some ritual rebirth in the baptism of water which is how the Jews of old made their converts. However, Christ is not saying that a man must be born again, but rather that he must be born from above, that he must have the Adamic spirit which God imparted to our race in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If we do not have that spirit, then we are spurious. And we are, no matter what we think we are, if we do not have that spirit, we are children of wrath who are not part of Yahweh's creation, but are instead a part of the corruption of Yahweh's creation, which has perpetuated since the fall of the angels which left their first estate. These are those whom the Apostle Jude describes as clouds without water, twice dead, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, and they're among us. Or I should say, in today's day and age, we are among them. They are children of wrath. there are other passages which where paul makes analogies of the difference between the man of the flesh the adamic man who follows the flesh and the man of the spirit the adamic man who obeys the spirit and lives by the spirit we shall not discuss them all but we shall cite 1 corinthians chapter 2 from verse 6 Now, we speak wisdom among the accomplished, but wisdom not of this age, nor of those governing this age, who are being done away with, those who are the children of wrath of Ephesians chapter 2. Rather, we speak the wisdom of Yahweh that had been hidden in a mystery which Yahweh had predetermined before the ages for our honor which not one of the governors of this age has known. Since, if they had known, they would not have crucified the authority of that honor. honor. But just as it is written, things which I did not see and ear did not hear and came not into the heart of man, those things Yahweh has prepared for them that love him. Yet to us, Yahweh reveals them through the Spirit, For the Spirit inquires of all things, even the depths of Yahweh. Indeed of men, who knows the things of mankind, except the Spirit of man which is within him? Even so, no one knows the things of Yahweh, except the Spirit of Yahweh. Now we do not receive the Spirit of the society or the world. But that Spirit from Yahweh, we are born from above. In which case, we should know the things granted to us by Yahweh, among which is eternal life. And the scoffers scoff and say, oh, all Israel isn't going to be saved. That's not what it means. Well, yes, that is what it means. We also which we also speak of, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2.13, which we also speak of, not instructed in words of human wisdom, but instructed in of the spirit, by the spiritual compounding with the spiritual, when you read your scripture. Now the natural man does not accept that of the spirit of Yahweh, for it is folly to him. And he is not able to know because it is inquired of spiritually. But the spiritual inquires into all things, and it by no one is examined. For who has known the mind of Yahweh? Who will instruct him? But we have the perception of Christ, or the perception of the anointed. The natural man is the fleshly man, the man with care for the flesh the man who disdains the word of God because he has chosen the ways of the world. The man who would tell you, oh, the little bastards, they're okay. It's not their fault they're bastards, even though such an attitude is absolutely contrary to the word of God. These same clowns that do these things, they imagine that if we obey the word of God, that we're not spiritual. We can't use these verses about spirituality as compared to the flesh as a license to pervert the word of God because we would rather go by our feelings. Oh, he's not spiritual because he doesn't believe that bastards are going to be saved. Oh, he's not spiritual because he hates niggers. Wow. I've heard this. Imagine that. If we're spiritual, we will understand the word of God because the law is spiritual.
1: Wow. They take that word and turn it upside down.
0: The law is spiritual. And when you have the spirit of Yahweh, you'll understand it. And you'll understand the implications of its judgments. And when you do that, you'll know that all the little bastards are going to the lake of fire. You will not accept the sins of the
1: flesh. These
0: clowns want to use this word word, spiritual as an excuse to accept the sins of the flesh. They're turning the word of God upside down. When you have the Spirit of God, you will agree with His law and not try to corrupt it for your own feelings, for the feelings and the desires of the flesh to make yourself feel
1: good in this world. From 1 John, chapter 4. Beloved, do not have trust
0: in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh. Because many false prophets have gone out into the society. And by that final clause, we see that John is talking about embodied spirits, not disembodied spirits. Not all men have the same spirit. As the prophet Malachi attests in a rather rhetorical way, we do not all have the same God. Verse 2, hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now, already, it is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, (laughs) those children of wrath because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, he that knows, God hears us. He that is not of God, hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Once again, the children of wrath are excluded from the equation. Not properly understanding. This is an old problem in Christian identity that I have to address. Not properly understanding that there are three types of men from the beginning and throughout the Bible has caused much confusion and unnecessary division even within Christian identity. First, there are the children of Adam, which are of the tree of life in Christ. Then, second, there are the children of corruption which are of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The lines between those two types of men cannot be crossed by individuals. You're born of one tree, you're born of God, or you're born of the
1: other tree. You're born of the world. If
0: you're born of the world, you can't make yourself born of God. No matter how many times your ass is dipped in the river, no matter how many times you're baptized, you can't become a child of God. You have to be born from above. If you're a child of God, on the other hand, you, you might be able to join yourself to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You might be able to join yourself to the children of wrath and have an offspring with them. Your offspring, they're bastards. That's how tares are made. That's how tares are sown in among the wheat. But you can't make yourself a child of wrath you'll be punished in this life oh you'll be punished you'll have no reward in heaven for what you've done unless you repent but you can't make yourself a child of wrath you're an Adamic man
1: but there's a third type of man
0: I'm sorry the apostle John explains that if Adams, if the Adamic man, if his seed is in him, then his sin shall not be imputed with, to him, because Christ came, and this is important. If you're an Adamic man, your seed is in you, and sin will not be imputed to you, because Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil are personified in the children of corruption. Every bastard you see is one of the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8 through 12. One of
1: those born of this world.
0: But the third type of man are the children of Adam who walk in the flesh rather than. After the spirit. And doing so, they make themselves children of corruption. And this is what Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 2. Yahweh, before he came as Yahshua Christ, Yahweh gave our entire Adamic race up to this third type of man. Paul explains that Yahweh was in the process of giving the people of Rome up to this third type of man. Those who
1: emulate the children of corruption because they follow the flesh.
0: Yahweh gave our entire Adamic race up to this third type but promised salvation for Israel and preservation in this world if they choose that life
1: in the spirit by which the
0: deeds of the flesh are overcome as Paul is about to explain in another way in the balance of this chapter.
2: from verse 7.
0: Now, what may we say? Is the law an error, or is the law of sin? Certainly not, but I had not perceived fault or sin unless by the law. Then also had I not acknowledged covetousness unless the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But the error having taken a starting point by the commandment, has accomplished in me all covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. The law was fulfilled in Christ. Or guilt is dead, as it says in the Christogenian New Testament. The law was fulfilled in Christ. And the children of Israel were released from the judgments of the law. But that does not mean... That the law was a mistake, or that the law itself was sin. When Paul recalled the law, his sin came to mind, and he realizes his error. Now, I was alive apart from the law once, but the commandment having come, the guilt was revived, and I died. And it was found to me that the commandment, which is for life, it is for death. For sin, having taken a starting point by the commandment, had seduced and killed me through it. We do not realize the gravity of our sin until we read the law and find that the punishment for our sin is death. Once we realize that obedience to the commandment keeps us on the path to life, and we see the consequences of our sin, we should understand that our sin leads us to death. Verse 12, So indeed, the law is sacred, and the commandment sacred and just and good. And Paul asks another rhetorical question, Then that which is good, To me, has it become death? Certainly not. But error or sin, that it may bring fault to light, through the good in me accomplishes death, so that the fault becomes excessively wicked by the commandment. The good in Paul can read the law and recognize that his behavior, which was contrary to the law, was sinful. People with agendas, bad people, read the law and see the circumstances of their lives. So what do they do? They seek to corrupt the law. That's what the Jews do. That's what the Talmud is all about. Oh, that word congregation in Deuteronomy 23.2, we'll just scratch that out and, and we'll interpret that word another way. That's what we'll do. And then my little bastard granddaughter, she's suddenly a saint. Yeah, right. That's what the Jews do. They dispute with the law of God. Paul saying that the good in him can read the law and recognize that his behavior, which was contrary to the law, was sinful. And a good man can do that and also acknowledge the punishment which he merited for that behavior, death. The good in Paul can recognize that his sinful behavior merited death, and therefore Paul is describing a learning process here. The result is that the Adamic man understands how important it is to keep the law of Yahweh in his heart and do his best to
1: abide by it. It is important that the sin becomes evident by the commandment so that
0: the Adamic man can experience sin and by that experience he can learn not to do evil.
1: We have already mentioned
0: in this passage 1 John chapter 3 in relation to Paul's discourse and we shall cite it more fully here he that committeth sin is of the devil for the devil sins from the beginning for this purpose the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil,
1: whoever,
2: whoever
0: is born of God, does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. There is confusion where the phrase committed sin appears in the first epistle of John. First, in the epistle of John, we find the verb hamartano is often used. The verb hamartano describes the act of sinning. But in 1 John 3.8, here in this passage, the verb poieo is used. Poieo appears with the noun for sin, which is hamartia. The resulting phrase does not describe the mere act of sinning. That's the function of the verb, which John uses elsewhere. The resulting phrase Koyeo means to make or do or create. The resulting phrase describes someone who creates or authors sin. The Adamic man, yielding to the flesh and led into sin when he forsakes God for the enemies of God, will not have sin imputed to him, but the authors of sin shall surely be destroyed. From the Septuagint, from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15. If we read, I would encourage people to read the Proverbs, the Wisdom of Solomon in the Apocrypha, and then Ecclesiastes. I don't care what the mainstream pundits say. All three of those books were originally authored by King Solomon. Proverbs is really only excerpts. Of things that Solomon wrote. In the days of Hezekiah, Hezekiah had the scribes take excerpts from the books of Solomon and re- re- record them, and that's what they did, and the book tells us that. When we read those three books, we'll see first that Proverbs and the wisdom the the wisdom of Solomon found in the Apocrypha was certainly written by the same man with the same ideas, the same wonderful ideas, and that Ecclesiastes is actually written also by the same man, but Ecclesiastes is written very cynically and to be contrarian. And the book of Ecclesiastes is written in a manner that It displays the condition of man apart from the promises of God, where when we get to the final chapter, that's basically explained by the author himself, that our only hope is in God. And without God, we are nothing but vanity. And and that's a different story. But when we read those three books, we will see that Solomon is the inspiration for a great number of the ideas of Paul of Tarsus. Without a doubt, Solomon was a, well, was a great contributor to the inspiration of Paul's writing. From the Septuagint, for the Wisdom
1: of Solomon, chapter 15.
0: But now, O God, art gracious and true, long-suffering and in mercy ordering all things. For if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. But we will not sin, knowing that we are, knowing that we are counted thine. <laughs> For to know thee, it's perfect righteousness. Yeah, to know thy power is the root of immortality. For the same reason, Paul tells the Galatians, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, We are no longer under a schoolmaster. Therefore, we conclude that the reason for the presence of the children of God
1: in this evil world is so
0: that they may know sin and learn the importance of obedience. Each and every Adamic man was created to be immortal. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. Romans, chapter 5. If each and every Adamic man does not have eternal life, then the lessons concerning sin and the need for obedience are pointless. And God has evidently failed.
1: God has failed
0: because if each and every Adamic man does not have eternal life, then God have, would not completely destroy the works of the devil who deceived the woman, who caused man to sin, and who thereby caused man to die. Yet, here in Romans, we find that God has certainly not failed. And the Apostle Paul has explained how in Christ each and every Adamic man shall be made alive.
1: The works of the devil,
0: which Christ came to destroy, resulted from the initial rebellion of Satan and his angels described in Revelation chapter 12. From these came the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was clearly here before the Adamic man was even placed into the Garden of Eden. So as Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning that Christ has taught us that the way to life It's in the law of God and in the spirit as opposed to the will of the flesh. However, we must be careful with this understanding. Since Yahweh created the flesh and he called it good, therefore it is not the flesh itself that is evil, but the mind which yields to the desires of the flesh can be led into sin and death. The Apostle James describes the process in chapter 1 of his epistle, where he says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death.
1: The non Adamic races are not mentioned in Scripture. Not by any name.
0: Yet in the end, we are told that all nations, including the non Adamic races, all people groups are gathered against the children of Israel, and that they all have their fate in the lake of fire with the devil and his angels yet Paul explains in Romans chapter 5 the entire Adamic race shall be made alive in Christ the Adamic race is here to learn what sin is and the Adamic race is written into the book of life and they shall indeed learn in the end every Adamic knee shall bow to Yahweh. Verse 14, Romans 7. Indeed, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, being ruined by
1: guilt. The King James translation,
0: being sold by sin, might be more popular. The the Greek word petramanos is a participle of a verb which means literally to sell metaphorically it can mean to be betrayed to be ruined or to be undone therefore here it is being ruined it may have been more literally having been sold by sin this reflects the compromise all translators must make in selecting the best rendering of a word in the context in which it was used. It also illustrates the need for translation notes. The children of Israel sold themselves into sin. However, by the time of Paul, and Paul was certainly alluding to that situation with his choice of words, but by the time Paul wrote, he, along with all Israel, had been redeemed by Christ, and could no longer be taken from his hand. The law is spiritual.
1: Only those with the Spirit of God can truly follow the law. Those without the Spirit
0: of God, they will always corrupt the law. Now, there are men with the Spirit of God who do not understand that, because they're deceived by the world, or because they are deceived by their own love for the world and their own lusts.
1: Paul has already said here that it was the
0: good in him which enabled him to see the gravity of his own sin after he had sinned and then recollected the law. That is why the writer of Psalm, Psalm 147 said, He, meaning Yahweh, shows his word unto Jacob, and his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. In contrast, in Psalm 50, Psalm 147 was written by Haggaius and Zechariah, I believe. Psalm 50 is written by Asaph. In Psalm 50, we see that the wicked should not even have the laws of Yahweh in their mouths. There's no no hope of repentance and law-keeping for the wicked. From verse 16 of Psalm 50, But unto the wicked, God saith. What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee? All Israel has hope for repentance. All Israel will indeed repent. But if there are people who should not have the word of God, or who should not have his law in their mouths in the first place, then there are people who are condemned for reasons other than merely their behavior. And this group is not able to repent and shall not even be given the opportunity for that reason alone. It must be that they are a corrupted seed. Only Israel has the law. Nobody else has a chance for repentance. Nobody else has a chance to keep the law. The pious Adamic man understands that he could sin, and he could ask for forgiveness, seeking to uphold the law of God. One place where this is evident is Psalm 51. From verse 9, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Romans 7.15, back to Paul. For that which I perpetrate, I do not recognize. I do not practice that which I wish. Rather, I do that which I hate. But if I do that which I do not wish, I concede to the law that it is virtuous.
1: In this very example, Paul mentions
0: covetousness or lust, which is arguably the easiest of all sins to fall victim. We may covet a woman, or we may covet a possession. With this, we shall repeat the words of the Apostle James, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished or when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Paul admits that he covets, but then he asserts that he hates covetousness and the covetous thoughts of his mind. If we refuse to recognize our covetousness, then we will not be enticed to act upon it, and we can escape sinning on account of our refusal. I do not recognize that which I perpetrate. He doesn't recognize his covetousness. That way, he won't act on it. In other words, he doesn't acknowledge it.
1: There are no real thought crimes in
0: the Bible because only acts are worthy of punishment under the law and not mere thoughts, even though the thoughts are wrong. We often cannot help our thoughts, but we must recognize evil thoughts and discard them. Not acting on his covetousness, Paul consents that the law is good where it says, thou shalt not covet. Verse 17, now then, no longer is it I perpetrating it, but the fault, the sin dwelling in me. The covetousness originates from the fleshly nature of man and not from the spirit. The spirit can overcome the flesh, and that Is our ultimate purpose, to live in the spirit and to seek to serve God rather than serving the desires of the flesh. If covetous thought arises and we don't acknowledge it, then we don't act on it. And Paul says, it's not I doing it, but the fault dwelling within me. In other words... (laughs) <laughs> the weakness of the flesh created the covetous the thought. But if we don't acknowledge it, we won't act on it, and we concede to the law that it is virtuous. Real simple. Therefore... I know that good does not dwell in me, that is to say, in my flesh. Indeed, to be willing is present with me, but for me to achieve virtue, no. To be willing, we wish to achieve virtue. That's the spiritual mind. The spiritual mind has to learn to control the fleshly. The Codex Claro-Montanus and the majority text, and therefore also the King James Version, they end... Verse 18 with the words, For me to achieve virtue, I find not. The flesh left to its own devices cannot do good. The spiritual man, the man with the spirit of Yahweh, who who employs that, who obeys that, and employs that as his guiding light, can overcome the deeds of the flesh. That's the Christian objective. Verse 19. I do not wish that I practice good, but that I do not wish evil, this I practice. And again, Paul is referring to covetousness, that merely having the thoughts of evil are evil, and admitting that he cannot help but have them. In this same manner, Christ said that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 5.28 Therefore, even if there is no punishment for such thoughts under the law, they are nevertheless wrong and men must avoid them. So when Paul, when they arise in him, he does not acknowledge them. He ignores them and and consents to the law that it's good, not acknowledging them, not recognizing them. He won't follow the way of the flesh into sin. Here, the difficulty of the struggle between the spiritual and the fleshly is manifest. Paul says that he merely wishes not to do evil rather than even hoping to do good. This is much like the prayer and the reason for praying with which Christ advised his apostles. When they asked him how to pray, he gave them that simple prayer which we often today call the Lord's Prayer. And it ends with the request that we not be tempted and that we be kept from evil. Matthew 6.13, Luke 11.4. Likewise, in the garden of Gethsemane, When Christ wanted to pray alone, he exhorted the apostles to await him and to watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And those words express exactly what Paul is saying here. Verse 20, But if that which I do not wish... This I do, no longer is it I perpetrating it, but the fault dwelling in me. Self control and temperance are required in order for the spirit to overcome the flesh. For that reason, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that accordingly, in that manner I run not as if secretly, in that manner I spar not as if thrashing air, rather I beat my body and bring it into subjection, lest perchance I, having proclaimed to others, myself should be found not standing the test. It is necessary for us to control ourselves. However, when we do fail, it is because the desires of the flesh were stronger than our spirit could stand. Ostensibly, most Adamic sinners in a state of apostasy from God do not keep themselves mindful of his law and have no real care or knowledge of why they should do so however when we sin knowingly or not we certainly have an advocate in Christ 1 John chapter 2 those of us who know and keep the truth of the Christian gospel, must pray that we are kept from temptation and are given a reminder that God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye ye may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Those of us who seek to correct the failures of our brethren do well. For the Apostle James said that he who converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. James 5.20 However, correcting our brethren, we must do so in the spirit of humility humility, and not with the spirit. Of self righteousness. Therefore, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a sin, you which are spiritual, you who know the law, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted.
1: Verse 21,
0: I find then the law which wishes me to practice virtue because evil is present with me. Indeed, I rejoice in the law of Yahweh. The Codex Vaticanus has in the law of the mind there. I rejoice in the law of Yahweh in accordance with the inward man. The inward man is the spirit from Yahweh which is within each and every Adamic man. If there is a spiritual, if there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul speaks of those children of Yahweh facing the trials of this world where he says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Again, from Proverbs chapter 20, the spirit of man is the candle of Yahweh, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members battling against the law of my mind and leading me captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. I am a miserable man who will deliver me from this body of death. Paul asks a rhetorical question, as it is clear that only Yahweh our God can save us. Verse 25, I am thankful to Yahweh through Yahshua Christ our Prince, So then, I myself, with the mind, indeed, serve the law of Yahweh, but in the flesh, the law of error or sin. Reading Proverbs, it is readily evident that Solomon believed all true wisdom to be of God. His attitude is the same in the wisdom of Solomon. And here we will read from chapter 9 of that work, from verse 13. For what man is he that can know the counsel of God? Didn't Paul say that same thing in this passage? We'll see that this, that this segment of the wisdom of Solomon was a great part of the inspiration for Romans chapter 7. For what man is he that can know the counsel of God, or who can think that the will of of Yahweh is, what the will of Yahweh is, for the thoughts of mortal men are miserable and our devices are but uncertain, for the corruptible body presses down the soul, and the earthly tabernacle weighs down the mind that muses upon many things, and hardly do we guess aright at things that are upon the earth. And with labor do we find the things that are before us. But the things that are in heaven, who has searched thou? And thy counsel, who has known? Except thou, give wisdom, and send thy Holy Spirit from above. For so the ways of them which lived on the earth were reformed, and men were taught the things that are pleasing unto thee, and we are saved through wisdom. The Apostle Peter taught many of the same things which Paul did here. From 2 Peter chapter 1, Simon Peter, servant and ambassador of Yahshua Christ, to those who have obtained by faith with us an equally valued faith in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yahshua Christ. Favor to you and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of our God and Prince Joshua, as his divine power has given to us all things which are for life and piety through the knowledge of he who has called us into his own honor and virtue. We don't have virtue, but we can be called into the virtue of God, by which he has given us to us precious and very great promises in order that through these you would be partakers of the divine nature, fleeing from the corruption in society in lust. And for the same thing also, besides applying all earnestness, you provide virtue in addition to your faith and with the virtue knowledge and with the knowledge self-control and with the self-control endurance. And with the endurance, piety. And with the piety, brotherly love. And with the brotherly love, charity. It must be noted that Peter mentions the corruption of the society in lust. And the author of the Wisdom of Solomon says, chapter 2, verse 23, For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, death came into the world. And they that hold his side do find it. Once Christ destroys the works of the devil, hell and death are cast into the lake of fire. and Adamic man shall have eternal life once again. However, the promise of that eternal life is in resurrection and in the resurrected body the spirit shall indeed coexist with the flesh. Therefore we see in Job chapter 19, verse 26, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So the scripture asks, O death, Where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The Adamic man was created to be immortal. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, Paul of Tarsus, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Once one has an understanding of all these scriptures in harmony and not in contention, then it becomes evident that there are deep implications here which are related to the issue of race that one must also understand. If the children of God, who are those born from above, are here to learn what sin is, and if the rest of the world and all those born of the world are sin, then we see why there are only two parties under consideration in all, all of the prophecies concerning the return of the Christ and the gathering of the nations. Wheat and tares, sheep and goats, good fish and bad fish, sons and bastards. The tares, the goats, the bad fish and the bastards are all among the works of the devil which Christ shall
1: ultimately destroy. Tomorrow night,
0: two seed line, in the New Testament. Next Friday, open lines. Next Saturday, a discussion with Sven Longshanks. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.